0: Hi there, Rolf here. Thanks for listening to this episode of my course podcast, Markets and Society. I've included a description and additional material where relevant in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy it. So just quickly summarize, we have this narrative of progress that we've embedded into our own sense of our modernity. The problem is it's hitting a physical limit, namely the ability to keep doing the things we're doing and at the same time have a livable planet. So we have to do something about that. And as I said, I see this not as a climate problem. I see the climate problem as an offshoot of a market problem. How can we change our market behavior in order to alleviate the issue? And I want to show you just why that's so clear, at least in my mind. Because in order for you to live the life, the only life that you can live, you have to be a consumer of carbon in the world that we've set up. There's no way for you not to live a life that doesn't mean you consume carbon. At the same time, As we've known already now for a number of years, and every single year hereafter is going to get clearer and clearer and clearer, consuming carbon is going to make your life and the lives of your children and their children substantially worse, potentially even cataclysmic. Therefore, you're in this odd position. To live your life, you have to consume carbon, the very thing that is going to help destroy your life and the lives of those who come after you. There's a phrase in psychology that we use to describe what happens when you have to keep two mutually incompatible ideas in your head at the same time. It's called cognitive dissonance. Smoking, I like smoking. I know smoking is bad for me. I light a cigarette, I enjoy it, then I feel bad, right? Cognitive dissonance. We have a problem of societal cognitive dissonance. I feel guilty about using carbon. I have no choice but to use carbon. Now, we could solve the climate problem right now by using the very market, that has created it. Because when you have a market, you have the potential to use the mechanism of the market to create tax. There's a kind of taxation called a Pigovian tax, which in technical economic terms means you tax the item to reflect the full cost of the externalities of using the item. But another way of saying that is, if you're using something and it fucks things up somewhere else, you have to pay for the fucking up that's happening. So smoking is a good example of a Pigovian tax Societies tax cigarettes not because they want money, but because they want to discourage people from the consumption of that good. It's not a good idea. In Australia, a pack of cigarettes is $50. Why is it $50? Because that's the extent to which the Australian government, Australian society, deems smoking as a health risk. Therefore, they increase the tax to discourage its consumption. And ideally, how much money does the Australian government want to collect every year from cigarette taxation? Zero. Because the goal is not to bring in income, The goal of it is to discourage a particular behavior. Let's simply apply that to our carbon problem. We know that if we use carbon, we're making a bad situation worse. So let's simply tax in the externalities of carbon use, which in this case is a livable planet. That's a bit of a hard externality to factor in. But let's put the price tag at somewhere around $100 trillion. That'll do. And now we want to make it so that every time you consume carbon, you have to pay not just the price of the good, the production, transport, etc., but you also have to pay the externality of the carbon that went into it. So all of a sudden, for every kilo of carbon that you're consuming, now we're going to tax it at, say, the rate of, I don't know, how about 1,000 euros? I'm just making it up, but that sounds good to me. So for every kilo of carbon, 1,000 euros. Now you go off to the local Primark, and there's the T-shirts on the rack that sell at the moment for, like, what, six euros or so for a T-shirt? But each T-shirt uses, say, 300 grams of carbon. So now the price of that T-shirt is $6 for the T-shirt plus the tax, 306 euros for a T-shirt. The flight that you were thinking of taking next weekend for that getaway to Croatia, which uses, say, 100 kilograms of carbon per person, how many of you are going to be flying or buying if we price in the true cost of carbon? And the answer is no one, except we're a very inventive, ingenious species. What do entrepreneurs recognize in the context of high taxation? There's a market opportunity. If you want to sell T-shirts, but they're too expensive for people to buy because they have to pay for the carbon that they use, What's the entrepreneurial opportunity? Start making T-shirts that do what? That don't consume carbon. Or instead of flying people that cost a lot of carbon, come up with new ways of transportation that dramatically lowers the cost. In other words, if we trust in our own entrepreneurial abilities, the very kind that's created the modern world we inhabit, we ought to have confidence that we will, with the right incentives, come up with the vast new ways of doing things when people's consumption behaviors are being guided by a Pigovian tax, that's what it's there for. Discourage doing bad things, encouraging people to do good things. However, there's a transition. Entrepreneurial innovation doesn't happen overnight. And so for at least a decade or maybe longer, no more flights, no more shirts, no more shoes, the bare minimum, we would fall into a kind of societally enforced poverty. Are you ready to accept that? No. Poor people, yes, often work hard, sacrifice a great deal for their children that their lives may be better. But wealthy people don't have that, ten, that mindset. So people who have as part of the expectation of their own modernity a certain level of prosperity are very unlikely to want to give it up. So although we could solve the problem, we have no social will to do so. And indeed, to suggest it wouldn't be highly complex I don't want to oversimplify, but the point is that the fundamental stumbling block is not the technological issue, it's the fact that it would plunge us into a kind of consumer poverty that none of us is willing to accept. No politician who introduced a Pagovian tax regime, would ever be elected on that platform. So when Greta Thunberg says that the people at the COP are just doing da-da-da-da-da and don't actually solve any of the problems, she's not wrong. But it's not actually their fault. Because any politician who actually undertook serious measures to solve the problem would immediately be thrown out of office because we're the problem. And we're not the problem through our own agency. We're the problem because this is the life into which we've been born, and that life carries with it certain expectations of the life that we get to lead as a function of our modernity. To this end, I want to point out, and this is going to be important by the end, that individuals can do nothing, almost nothing, to solve this problem. There's nothing you can do in terms of your own daily habits that's going to make this problem any better. This is a systems-level problem. So although you might recycle like a fanatic or you're very good about taking the train and not a plane or you always look for some kind of bi-organic green alternative, etc., in the scheme of things, that's going to make no difference whatsoever. However, the mindset that you have to the problem is in fact very important. And you, more than anybody, more than anyone who has lived yet on earth because you are an inflection point generation. You are a hinged generation. And by that I mean you will experience firsthand and your children certainly will experience firsthand the full impact of the changes that are coming our way in ways that my generation and my parents' generation have not. So the mindset that you bring to this is going to be very critical in terms of coming up with or devising potential solutions. And I'm going to submit modestly that that solution means rethinking the social construction of the market. Why do I say social construction? Because a market is an institution. Institutions are created by societies. And so it means that we as a society need to rethink the market mechanism that surrounds us. Okay, part of the problem that we have in thinking about the questions of climate change, as I noted, right, we talk about saving the planet, when it's not the planet that needs to be saved, it's ourselves who need to be saved, is that we almost, at least as I see it, we invariably frame the problem what I'm calling solipsistically. Solipsistic means with reference to the self. So when I talk about, I give an example here, rising sea levels. So we all know that as a result of both the thermal expansion of water and melting ice sheets, that the ocean levels will rise. If I tell you that, say, by the year 2100, sea levels will rise by three meters on average, what's the first thing you think of? You're like, Buddy, my house is like 50 meters above sea level. I've got no problem. That's the way we tend to process this information. Or else you're like, okay, my plan's to move to Florida. Forget it. I'll go someplace else. We make it about us. How bad is that for me? And when we think about it in terms of heat waves or these kinds of things, we tend to reduce it to its impact on our lives, on the convenience or the comfort that we can expect in terms of the lives that we lead. And the real issue is that climate change, the full catastrophe of climate change, affects us not as a first-order effect, but as a second-order problem, as a second-order effect. I want to show you an example of the kind of fallacy that this solipsistic reasoning can produce. There is a Swedish economist, I don't know, we got a lot of, no, he's Danish, sorry, we have a lot of Scandinavians, Bjorn Lomborg, who's actually not a scientist, not a climate scientist, he's an economist, but he's made a big name for himself by going around saying, look, We've exaggerated the problems of climate change. He likes to he has a little thing that he likes to say. He says, people are very happy living in Helsinki, and they're happy living in Abu Dhabi. So we can live in cold cities, and we can live in warm cities. People are flexible. People are adaptable. So climate change, honestly, what's the big deal? And here's a good example of that.
1: Okay, myth number two. Extreme weather events are on the rise, and they are proof of climate change. True or False.
0: Okay, so it's a program, seven myths about climate change. What is a myth? Something that is not true. Myth number two, extreme weather events. For example, at the moment, California, which seems to cycle between drowning in water or else suffering through droughts. So the myth is these extreme weather events are proof that climate change is real. And that's the myth that now Bjorn Lomberg is going to expose to us. Now listen carefully to how he answers the question. This is a good moment for critical thinking skills here. See how he answers the question. So
1: look, there are some things that we should be aware of. So extreme weather is typically the argument that most people use for climate change. Some extreme things increase. So you're gonna see more heat waves as we talked about before. You're also gonna see more uh, uh, heavy rain. Those are two things that we know are gonna happen. For instance, in storms, uh, so hurricanes, you're probably gonna see fewer Hurricanes, which is actually good, but you'll probably see stronger hurricanes, which is bad. We become much more resilient towards many of these disasters. So as we get richer, we don't get nearly as affected by climate impacts. So what you've actually seen, if you if you take a graph of how many people die from climate-related disasters, well, we have good data for that for the last hundred years. In the 1920s, about half a million people died each and every year from climate disasters. A lot of them were floods and droughts, uh, especially in China and India that you've never heard of. What's happened since then is it's declined dramatically. So in the 2010s, we were down to 18,000 people, so about 96% reduction in deaths. And last year, it was down to 14,000, so in 2020. And in 2021, we don't obviously have the whole uh, uh, year yet, but it looks like 2021 is set to be even lower at about 6,000.
0: Okay, extreme weather events is proof that climate change is real. Has Bjorn Lomborg demonstrated that that is a myth? What's he talking about? How much we are affected by extreme weather events, not whether the weather events themselves are proof of climate change. Now, if you weren't thinking very carefully, if you weren't listening carefully, you'd come away from that saying, Look, we're fine. Everything's good. Okay, the hurricanes will be much stronger than before, but there'll be fewer of them, as it wipes, like, Florida off the map. But it's okay, because, you know, we have hurricane warnings now, so I can get the hell out of there, and I and my family will live. Yay. This is a good example of the kind of solipsistic reasoning. We have this problem, extreme weather events, proof of climate change, and what's Bjorn Lomberg talking about? How many of us will die as a result of them. Let's make it all about us. The problem is, that's not where the dynamics of climate change, at least in the near term... Are going to be happening. Because we're looking at it through the eyes that we have. We are a generalist species, like cockroaches. We can survive, indeed thrive in many different kinds of environments. But that's actually a very unusual evolutionary outcome. Evolution tends to select for organisms that are specifically suited to specific niches in the ecology around them. So most species are in fact specialists like the panda bear. We all know the panda was threatened. Why was the panda threatened? Because it lives on bamboo. If there are no bamboo forests, it dies. It can't simply switch to a different food source. So from the point of view of a generalist, as the t- climate increases through one, two, three degrees of warming, we're like, ah, no problem. I just will I'll move from Abu Dhabi and I'll move up to Helsinki. Looks a nice place. Finns are nice people. But what we're forgetting is that 98% of the Earth's biomass is not generalist. It's specialist And so the real problem, particularly in the coming, say, 30, 40, 50 years, is going to be the mass extinction of organisms who over hundreds of thousands or millions of years have evolved to thrive in a specific environment, and now that environment is very rapidly changing. We see this happening, I think, at the deepest level of the the biomass. And indeed, this is the beginning. You are going to witness, unusual time, what's being called the sixth extinction event, or sometimes the Holocene or uh, Anthropocene extinction event, an extinction event in which most of the uh, biomass of the Earth dies off as a result of human-caused warming. And a good example of that is the decline in observed insect biomass. How many insects are there per square meters? Now, the sad fact is that we don't have a lot of good data on this because going back, say, 30, 40 years, not too many people were interested in putting boxes in their gardens and counting insects. However, Germans were, because they're just wired that way. So there's a German study, and they, did, they found a certain kind of biomass. They replicated that study in 2015 and found a 75% decline in insect population. And perhaps you might see this reinforced anecdotally. Fewer flies, fewer moths, fewer mosquitoes, et cetera, flying around. Insects are at the very base of the food chain, in terms of many of our ecologies. So when we start to see insects dying off, it's a bit like the canary in the coal mine, right? It's a a bellwether for how bad things are getting. And it's not just insects. Sea temperatures are also rising, and as the sea temperatures increase, we see changes in salinity, and we see also changes in acidity. And that means that for many microorganisms which are specialized to, to exist in a specific temperature range, salinity range, and acidity range, can no longer survive. And indeed, that's what we find. Phytoplankton, which is at the very base of the entire maritime ecology, is starting to show very significant and indeed extremely alarming levels of decline. No phytoplankton then eventually means basically the seas die off. Nothing can live inside of the oceans. This is not the first time this has happened. We have good evidence in the geological record of the earth of what a mass extinction event looks like. And this is what it looks like. It looks like biomass gradually disappearing from the record and eventually a very significant reduction in the overall number of species that can survive and a very few make it through and then Earth starts up again and a whole new set of animals emerges. You all know about the disappearance of the dinosaurs, the dominant uh, creatures right at the top of the food chain. They almost all died out except for a few birds, but no problem, created niches for mammals to emerge and here we are so many millions of years later. So in terms of the mass extinction in the planet, not an issue, life will continue. That's not what we're worrying about. We're worrying about us. Can we continue? And that's the problem. If we think it through the lens of Bjorn Lomborg, can I survive a hurricane? Can I survive a drought? Can I move to a place that's cooler? Yeah, it's fine. But can we survive in a world where all the trees and all the shrubs and all the flowers and all the insects and all the phytoplankton and all the fish and everything else is dying out because they don't have time to adapt to new climate conditions? That's the problem that we face. We'll be okay. We're like cockroaches. We can go live underground if we have to. Elon Musk is even dreaming of setting up new worlds in Mars, presumably mostly populated by him. But that's not where we should be focused on. We need to focus on the ecology around us. That's where the hard work is to be done. And we don't pay enough attention to that because we want to personalize at the level of our species this problem. But it's not a personal problem. It's a global problem. I'll very quickly give you an example of the kinds of things that we will see, you will definitely see, I probably will see because I think it's going to happen soon, that will start to accelerate these kinds of changes and make the urgency of action all the greater. I hope we feel that there's a great urgency of action, apparently not at these COP things, but uh, broadly speaking, we recognize this as a problem in our society. I'm going to pr- argue that that sense of urgency is only going to increase, meaning that our, the mindsets that we bring to this problem are going to matter more and more as the problem becomes more and more evident. And the one I wanna focus on, mostly because I'm Canadian and I like the Arctic, is the so-called blue ocean event. A blue ocean event, this is an excellent example of data visualization. So this is the average Arctic sea ice volume by month, the different colors of the different months, spiraling around with the different years. So this is sometimes known as the Arctic death spiral. What is the clear trend that we see? What's happening to all the ice in the Arctic? It's going down the drain. It's going to zero. It's unambiguous. So it's simply a matter of not if, but when. This is unstoppable. We cannot somehow reverse this trend. This is going to happen. When we get a blue ocean event defined as summer Arctic ice extent of less than 1 million square kilometers, so that means that basically the entire Arctic Ocean is open water, we're going to see in relatively short order a set of rather dramatic changes. The reason being that ice has a high albedo effect. When sunlight hits ice, it reflects back. But when sunlight hits open water, the heat from the sun is absorbed into the water and therefore will increase the overall warming of the Arctic Ocean. That's a self-reinforcing or so-called feedback loop. The warmer the ocean gets, the harder it is to form the ice. The less ice that's formed, the warmer it gets, and so on and so on. And so there are a whole set of changes that will happen when we get the blue ocean event, the first of which is we'll get more blue ocean events. As soon as we get one, we're very likely to get more. Additionally, that will dramatically increase the warming around the circumpolar region, so the Greenland ice sheet, already melting at a rapid rate, that pace of melt will increase even uh, even further. But there's something else that's very interesting involved in the blue ocean event, and we start to see this already happening. As the Arctic gets warmer, the so-called refrigerator of the world, when we have a stable, cold environment up in the north of our planet, one of the advantages of that is that it creates wind flow, which is very stable and predictable, simply swirling around, uh, around the Arctic, uh, around the polar region, circumpolar region. As the polar areas get warmer, this so-called polar vortex, the flow of wind, starts to destabilize because it's not being kept in place by cold air up here and warm air down here. As that changes, this Arctic flow tends to wobble or get disrupted. And we see these wobbles in the polar vortex when we start to see things like unusually cold weather in places which don't normally get very cold weather. So for instance, a few years ago in Spain, we had a big storm. That was a result of the wobbling of the polar vortex. It brought Arctic air much further south than that Arctic air normally extends. A few weeks ago in the state of uh, Florida or in the state of Texas, there were temperatures of minus six, minus eight, minus 12 degrees. These are unknown temperatures for most of those regions. Why? Wobbling of the polar vortex brought very cold air much further further south. When people say it's very cold outside, so global warming is a myth, that's the kind of idiotic response that's not getting us anywhere. Instead, we need to recognize that these kinds of disruptions to a previously stable system are all evidence of what is happening as a result of the system's changes that's taking place inside uh, inside of the Earth's climate. So these are going to be one example, extreme weather events taking place with respect to temperature. And another one that affects us here in Western Europe is the potential shutdown of ocean circulation currents, the most uh, important of which is the so-called AMOC, the Atlantic uh, Meridional Overturning Circulation. And I appreciate this isn't super fascinating, so I'll go through it quickly. But broadly speaking, ask yourself why it is that people who live in Norway where it should be absolutely frigid, nonetheless enjoy relatively warm weather? And the answer is because there is a circulation of water that moves warm water from the Gulf of Mexico and recirculates it up off the coast of Western Europe, and that makes for much more gentle temperatures, particularly in winter, in Western Europe. The reason this circulation happens is as a result of differential salinity between salt water and fresh water, and that system has been stable for a very long period of time. However... As global ice sheets start to melt, pouring lots of fresh water into the oceans, then that salinity ratio starts to change. And as it starts to change, the circulating patterns start to get affected, they slow down, and there's even an idea that they might stop altogether. You may have seen the movie The Day After Tomorrow, right? that absolutely terrible movie in which the world freezes in like 24 hours. The premise of that movie was the shutdown of this circulation system. It will not happen in 24 hours, but it used to be thought it could only happen over the course of thousands of years. But now people have started to look at it, and they realize that it could actually happen much faster than that, perhaps hundreds of years, perhaps even only 50 years. And we're already seeing the first evidence of slowdowns in things like thermohaline circulation. What this means in practical terms is that the warm winters enjoyed by places like the British Isles, Norway, and even off the coast of France and so on are likely to become much, much colder in the future. As an example of the kinds of triggering effects that these disruptions have, think about for instance the French wine industry. Grapes can't survive below certain temperatures. If it suddenly starts to get regularly -10 minus -15 minus degrees in winter, then suddenly no grapes are being grown in France, the French wine industry is destroyed, and suddenly a bunch of angry farmers presumably will blow up things on the Champs-Élysées. This is the way in which all of this stuff is connected. Similarly, we may have seen a few years ago heat domes descending over places like the Pacific Northwest that never get super hot, and all of a sudden they have temperatures of 42, 45, 48 degrees. Well, those regions are not very far from where the bulk of the world's lentils and other cereals, corn, maize, and so on are grown, and lentils and corn, at least as we grow them now, cannot survive sustained temperatures of more than 35, 36, 37 degrees. So these extreme weather events have the real potential to disrupt the very basis upon which our agricultural, our alimentation system that we've uh, developed and integrated globally is is based. We have an example already in our Earth's uh, history, the so-called PETM, PetM, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. We have an example of what it looks like when you have extremely rapid warming. Extremely rapid warming, though, in this case, is in geological time, 20,000 to 50,000 years. And what you saw then was the polar ice caps melted alligators, or crocodiles, I guess, were found in the polar regions. There was a mass extinction, not as great as the other mass extinctions, but there was an extinction event, widespread biodiversity loss. And it took about 200,000 years for the Earth's climate to re restabilize We, to put it in perspective, are introducing the CO2e, meaning all greenhouse gases, not just carbon dioxide, but methane and others, we're introducing a similar level of release that we saw in the PET-M, except instead of doing it over 20 to 50,000 years, we will be doing it in the order of several hundred to maybe 1,000 years. So we're taking this extreme event that we can already observe in the geological record, and we're hypercharging it. We're going to make it extreme and sudden, and that, in terms of what we should look forward to, is something of an unknown, because never in the Earth's geological record do we see anything like The rapidity of change, pace of change, that we're seeing at the moment. And it gets worse. Just when you thought it couldn't get worse, it gets worse. Because a very recent paper, literally published last November, I read it over the Christmas break, by a guy named Hansen, uh, called Global Warming in the Pipeline, makes, I think, a very good argument for why what we thought was already a bad situation is probably worse than than we knew. The reason why Hansen matters is because James Hansen was the person who, in the late 1980s, was one of the first people to get up and say, we need to take global warming seriously, and no one listened to him. And here we are, and he's now a very old man in his 80s, and he's still publishing papers on this. So because we didn't listen to him in the 1980s and do anything about it, now we have to listen to him now and deal with what we have done. And what he found, and I won't go through all of this stuff here, but basically what he found was that the so-called earth climate sensitivity, meaning how sensitive the earth is to changes in uh, greenhouse gas accumulations, is higher than we thought. Therefore, there is what he calls more warming in the pipeline. We've built in more warming than we previously had expected. And he anticipates that that warming that we've built into the pipeline to be about 10 degrees warmer than pre-industrial average. To make that clear, in order for the Earth's climate to go back into equilibrium, that is to say, for the amount of energy that's being released by the Earth every day and the amount of energy that's coming into the Earth every day, for that to stabilize, the Earth's temperature needs to rise by 10 degrees. If that happens, it's game over. There is no scenario in which the Earth's average surface temperature rises by 10 degrees and human beings have really any chance whatsoever to continue their civilization. Maybe a couple of very wealthy people can eke it out in bunkers in New Zealand or something, but it's not going to be much of a life worth living. So we have to plan that we don't get there. Part of the problem that we've had so far is that the warming that's already being triggered by the release of global greenhouse gases has been to a degree masked, as a very effect of releasing those greenhouse gases. When you release coal, for example, when you burn coal, a byproduct of burning coal is that it creates aerosols, mostly sulfur, in the air, little particulates, what we call air pollution. Air pollution reflects heat back. It has a high albedo effect. So it reflects solar radiation back out to space. However, in order for us to cut our emissions, what do we have to do? Stop burning coal, which means we stop putting up these aerosols into our atmosphere. The so-called aerosol masking effect has meant that the amount of warming we've experienced so far is less than what it would be ordinarily, given how much carbon we've released. And as we solve the problem, we will in the short term make it worse because we're taking something that's actually alleviating the impact and we're going to have to eliminate that as a result of decarbonization, which is one of the reasons why there are geoengineering projects that are talking about spreading aerosols into our atmosphere. Uh, as a corrective measure. That was just fantasy science fiction 20 years ago that looks today to be absolutely necessary. So the bottom line, the takeaway from all this, is that because we fucked around for a long time, now we're finding out. And to be clear, you guys didn't fuck around. You had nothing to do with it. You didn't ask to be born. These are things that people have done to you, and now you get to clean up their mess. You're like the Airbnb owner who comes back and finds that the recent people who've been in the house peed in in the kitchen, left nasty surprises in the bathrooms, and now you're there with a mop and a bucket going, fuck, because you aren't responsible, but you're the one upon whose shoulders it must devolve to clean up this mess. And let's just take a quick look at how well people have done in your lifetime. So we've been having cops your entire life. You're the first native green generation in this sense, except we're not really green. You're the first generation that's native about constantly kvetching about the climate. COP 1, 2, etc. right? We just finished up, what was it, COP 27 in, in Egypt. So let's see how we've done. First of all, let's take a look at the release of carbon into the atmosphere. This is the famous Keeling curve named after a scientist named Keeling who went to Hawaii and stuck a device on one of the sides of the mountains there to measure carbon particulate in the atmosphere. And this was what he found. So let's see. You were born about here. How have we done? Ah, the curve is slightly accelerating. Excellent. I was born back here in a world which was under 320 parts per million. You were born, say, around here in a world that was around 370. And if you decide to have children, they will be born somewhere in a world of 450. And if they have children, it'll be somewhere like 500 if we keep the current trend going. This is not good. 20 years of knowing that this is an existential threat, and what have we done? We haven't changed the curve one little bit. I give it to you another way. Let's take a look. COP 6, the year 2000, more or less the year of your birth. And to the year 2000, fully 86% of all energy that was used by human society was carbon-based, whether it was in the form of coal, oil, gas, whatever. Hydrocarbons, 86%, with a small smattering of other things making up the rainy 14%. That's in the year 2000. 22 COPs since, people getting together, discussing in urgent ways how to make the world better, talking about thinking of their children, leaving them a greener earth, you, how have they done? 83%. That is almost, I mean, statistically, basically the same. And it's worse than that because even over this period of time, the amount of energy that we've consumed has expanded very dramatically. 2,000 from 120,000 ter- terawatt hours up to over 160,000 today, as China and India continue their pace of industrialization. So we're using more energy, and the same percent more or less of that energy still remains hydrocarbon. And we know that if we want to maintain temperatures at an even reasonable level, somewhere below three degrees, we need to decarbonize completely by when? Some people say 2050, 2040, but soon, soon, in your lifetime, we need to decarbonize. If we don't, if this trend continues, bad things are happening. So it's a very serious issue. And I want to remind you, why are we using all this carbon-based energy? Because the basis of our modern sense of self is essentially the use of a market which derives its energy from, from carbon. This is a function of who we are today. So let me get to the last part that I wanted to cover here. Two purposes of this class, markets and society. The first is, as we're going to see in covering much of the material that we're going to go through... We're a self-disrupting species. We have ample evidence that human beings can, in relatively short order, go from living one way to living another way. When you're stuck inside of a paradigm, it feels like that paradigm will never, ever change. But the remarkable thing is that when paradigms do start to change, they change very quickly. We can move from one circumstance to another circumstance. And so when we see, as we'll cover in this class, all the different types of material that review all the different ways that people have been able to live, What we can see is that even though it feels like we're stuck inside of a paradigm which can never change, in fact, we have ample evidence from our past, not just the recent past, but even our more distant past, of human beings constantly shifting their paradigm. When do human beings tend to shift their paradigm? When the existing paradigm no longer is working. And I would humbly submit that when your existing paradigm is leading you inexorably to an uninhabitable planet... That's a good sign that the existing paradigm is broken and it's time to find a new one. But we as a species are capable of finding new paradigms. What changes paradigms? Young people with new ideas is an important part, but what's the other important part of paradigm change? Old people with bad ideas dying. They're both necessary components of paradigm shift. Okay, why is it that we have been incapable, even though we've known the full severity of the problem that we face for 20, 30, 50 years, why have we done so little about it? And the argument, I remember I'm making the argument that this isn't a climate problem, it's a market problem. And so I'll finish with this observation. And we'll be, by the way, reviewing this text, specifically the Affluent Society, at the end of our class when we talk about the modern consumer culture post-industrial revolution. Anyway, fellow Canadian and uh, legendary economist John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a book in 1957 called The Affluent Society, one of the great critiques or great analyses of free market capitalist systems. And what he pointed out in that book, or the question he was asking, was if you look at developed industrial nations, 1950s, there are very few places which don't have more than enough wealth to keep people in more or less happy, affluent, prosperous lives. You can all feed yourselves, you can house yourselves, you have plenty of things to go around. So the question he had was, in the context of being affluent, why should we be perpetually seeking more affluence? What's the purpose of that greater affluence? Are we just inherently greedy as a species? History says no. There are many examples of clearly demonstrable cases of human behavior which demonstrates that we are not inherently greedy. So what is it that's propelling us to ever-greater affluence? Another way of saying that is towards ever-greater consumption, to becoming ever-wealthier than we are already. And you can see since 1957, uh, normalized to $2,011 dollars, that all these different developed societies have all gotten wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, even since Galbraith made that observation in 1957. He wanted to know what's going on. Well, the mechanism that he identified, and we'll explore this in great detail when we turn to his work, is not actually a function of human greed, It's a function of human psychology at its most basic level. We are, as a species, like many species, we are risk-averse. We don't seek out risk. It's damaging to our health. It threatens our lives. So we like to live inside of a secure environment. And it turns out, at least as Galbraith analyzed it, affluence is security. But not in the way, perhaps, that you're thinking about it, because it links back to a fundamental problem of this modernity that we've created for ourselves. If we think of modernity as us achieving control over nature, we can define our own lives, we don't have to be peasants and so on, yet there's another problem because even as we've reclaimed our agency in that way, we've lost it in another. And think about your own life, think about yourself. Do you have any way of keeping yourself alive other than using the market mechanism? Let's suppose you decided, I'm objecting on moral grounds, I will not consume any carbon and so on and so forth. You have no choice. Short of taking yourself out of society, becoming some kind of hermit, you have no choice but to live inside of the market mechanism. What does that mean? The only way you can keep yourself alive, no, better than that, the only way you can even imagine yourself next year, five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, is as a market entity. That's the only choice that any of us has available at the moment. The way you keep yourself alive is you go to the market, you offer them your labor, and they give you a wage, right? And then you use that wage to buy the things that you want, food, house, etc., There's no alternative. There's no other way. There's no co-op or anything like that you can join. It's a labor market that takes your labor and exchanges it for a wage. And you can see how pervasive this is because in 1940, only about one in 20 people went to university because university is a place to spend four boring years acquiring highly specialized, rather pointless knowledge. Today, what, half of people go to university? Probably all of your friends that you know go to university. Why are you in university? Is it because you have an unquenchable thirst for knowledge? Is it because you are all gentlemen and lady scholars at the moment, eager to expand your horizons, eager to learn new things for the sake of learning them? No. Why do people go to university? To get a job? You can get a job. There's lots of jobs out there that you can do without a university degree. To get a better job. To make your labor more valuable. University is not about making ourselves better, learning more things, exploring new ideas, expanding our horizons. It's a qualification that we feel we have to get in order to earn a better wage in the market upon which we are dependent to survive. And the very fact that every year, millions, tens of millions of people trudge off to university that they don't want to attend to take classes that they're not very interested in to get a little piece of paper just so that somebody can pay them a slightly higher wage tells you the full degree of the affluence trap that the market has created for us. Because ultimately, in a world where the only way you can survive is to exchange your labor for a wage across an impersonal market mechanism, what do you need in order for that world to be acceptable? You need that market to be functioning. It has to be working. How do you know a market is working? When the economy is growing and more jobs are being created, more jobs are being created, it's exactly the thing that you need in order to keep yourself alive. There is never a point when you have enough, not because of the consumer goods world in which we live in, but the psychological world of the market society that we have created for ourselves. So if you're very fortunate, and I hope you all are, to be born into wealth and affluence and a nice trust fund, and you're not looking forward to a life that's uh, spent working hard for a wage, good for you, you've exempted yourself from this logic. But that's not most people. Most people envision a life going forward, getting a job, buying a house, buying a car, all the things they want comes through the market. You are an agent of the market. Your agency is subordinate to the market. That's the problem we've got. If I simply introduce a Pigovian tax, what does it do? It stops market function, the very thing we need to create the well-being that surrounds us in this market society. So it's something we can't stop because we are psychologically dependent on it. This was great, great insight. So this means this is why it's a market problem. We have to continue using the market because it's linked to our psychological sense of well-being. We have no choice but to use the market. But using the market does what? It means the inevitable release of more and more and more greenhouse gases, which eventually and in relatively short order will lead to an uninhabitable planet. And that is an impossible paradox. If we were a stupid animal, we would simply die. Animals that don't have reason simply become extinct. But we're not a stupid species. We have reason, we have adaptability, we have flexibility. If one set of rules is not working, what should we do? We should find a better set of rules. That's the challenge that we have going forward. And so I see this as a mindset issue. We need to reclaim agency over the market. As long as we remain dependent on the market society around us, as long as that market society is going to be a net consumer of hydrocarbon-based energy, then we're screwed. But we have the possibility of imagining new types of alternatives. And the good news is, over the course of human society, there have been 1,001 different types of market arrangements that people have come up with in order to facilitate and regulate exchange and flow of goods and ideas. And so that's what we're going to do, is to look at the different types of markets that we can explore over the course of the long human history. And we'll conclude by looking at the ways in which, over the last 150 years, we have become specialized as consumers, that the pattern of consumption that you feel almost organically is in fact an artificial byproduct of 150 years of cultural construction that's turned us all into hyper specialist consumers. Forget whatever it is that you're studying, because that's not where our specialization lies in modernity. We are specialists in what? Consuming. That's why we work That's why we bother going out getting a wage to become consumers. No one goes into work at some shitty job because they love the job so much, right? And if they tell you that, they're lying. They do it because it gives them the money that they need to then go get the things that they want. And many of you are dreaming to be entrepreneurs. What's the end goal of being an entrepreneur? A, to be better than other people, B, to buy a big yacht, and C, not have to work. So the whole point is we have created ourselves as consumer specialists. A very odd and unusual feature of the human psyche that is only about 100 years old or so. Yes, there's a question in front. Oh, my time is up. Okay, the the whistle has blown. Thank you very much. I'll see you guys next week.